Ruth chapter three, at this point in the story uh, where we are at this morning, Ruth has been laboring in Boaz's field for somewhere along the lines of six to eight weeks. Uh, The barley harvest is almost finished, which means that the two uh, are gonna be going their separate ways here shortly. And the question we as readers are asking ourselves is, uh, how do we get them married? (laughs) How can they... How can they fall in love and live happily ever after because the time is running out? Naomi, the mother-in-law in the story, is also trying to figure out how to answer that question. And what she does in her passage today is she comes up with a plan. This plan is vigorously debated among students of the Bible whether or not this is a noble plan or a nefarious scheme of seduction. Um, I tend to think it's more the latter than the former. As we read the story, we discover that it it was actually altogether unnecessary. It was an unnecessary plan because as the story makes clear, Boaz is a willing redeemer. They could have simply asked Boaz, will you please do your, your work of redemption? And I think Boaz would have would say gladly, yes, because he's a picture of Christ. Well, thankfully, um, Ruth doesn't go through the plan all exactly the way that Naomi hatches it. She refuses to be a mere pawn in this scheme, though she tells her mother-in-law that she'll follow all of her all of her um, directions precisely and entirely. She, in fact, does not follow all of her directions, but she deviates from the script in a very significant way, and I want to see if you can catch it as uh, we read here. So, um, Ruth 3, verse 1. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Now, Boaz, with whose women you have been worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Ruth answered, I will do whatever you say. So when she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do, or sorry, so she went down to the threshing floor and, and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me. Literally, she says, cover me with your wing. That's the idiom. But spread the corner of your garment. Cover me with your wing, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of, your, of our family, 
There is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty, and the duty uh, uh, is, it involves both the purchase of land and marriage. If he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she laid his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be reco- before anyone could be recognized. And he said, "No one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor." He also said, "Bring me the shawl that you are wearing and hold it out." When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law Naomi, Naomi asked, "How did it go, my daughter?" Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Looking back at your life, have you ever put yourself in a situation that was unsafe Maybe you've done something dumb and dangerous and you realized I shouldn't be here, but God in his mercy uh, protected you in that circumstance. I assume that that's happened to you. It's certainly happened to me. One of the dumbest things that I ever did was about 10 years ago. It was February. I was very depressed and I decided, well, what would... Here's a great way to escape the gloom of Boise in the winter. I'm going to take a trip to Twin Falls. Because <laughs> that's a great vacation destination when you're, when you're depressed and you're escaping winter gloom, right? So I'm going to take myself to Twin Falls, check myself into a cheap hotel room with my Bible, and have my own personal prayer retreat. That was my idea. Well, on my way out of town, I stopped at Costco to pick up uh, a pair of glasses that I had ordered. I think they were the second pair of prescription lenses I had ever had. So I wasn't very accustomed to wearing glasses, uh, but I was nearsighted and, and needed them. So I put the prescription glasses on, and it turned out that the, the prescription was wrong, but I didn't know it. I, I assumed that the weird distortion in my vision was just something that you would get over naturally in time. Your, your eyes would adjust to it. So um, I had no depth perception whatsoever. <laughs> so on a cold February icy morning, a severely depressed pastor drives two hours to Twin Falls for a prayer retreat in a cheap hotel, completely with a distorted vision and absolutely no depth perception. And, and he made it <laughs> alive without any damage. God, what was I thinking? Um, I wasn't thinking. I was depressed, desperate, and disoriented. The glasses that were over my eyes were really a parable of where I was at at that moment in my life and the the lens through which I was seeing everything else. Um, That's my story. I think that there is a parallel between my story and probably some of your dumb stories and this this terrible plan that Naomi hatches... um, there's so many different ways that this could have gone wrong. I mean, it probably should have been disastrous. Single woman walking through the dark 
in the middle of Israel during the time of the days of the judges where sexual violence is rampant and everybody does what's right in their own eyes, uh, headed to the threshing floor unaccompanied by herself. Obviously, the woman could have been assaulted. She could have been raped. Remember last week when I said Boaz told his own men, don't lay a hand on her because he was concerned, reasonably concerned that somebody could take advantage of her. She could have been assaulted. He could have been offended. The threshing floor was a place that prostitutes would come at night. He could have woken up and saw Ruth at his feet and said, what kind of man do you take me to be? Who do you think I, I am? He could easily have been offended. What makes it even more interesting is if you go back in the Pentateuch, to the books of Moses, you remember one of the stories in Israel's history is when the women of Moab are sent to seduce the men of Israel and lead them into ruin. It would be very easy to interpret the story through that lens, that she has come as a Moabite woman to repeat that that same event. The language here that is used in the passage is full of sexual innuendo and ambiguity. This language of lie down with him or uncover his feet is intentionally ambiguous. But if you read the Old Testament, you find it's very sexually uh, you know, connotative. And then notice what Naomi tells her to do. Put on your best perfume Make yourself as as sexually alluring as possible and then approach a red-blooded man in the middle of the night and lie down next to him after he's been partying with his men celebrating the barley harvest and her words are, just wait to see what he wants to do next. And you read that and you're like, come on. This is very PG-13 at at a minimum. Um, That's... It's, her intentions surely aren't entirely pure. So yeah, the, prop, the plan could have gone wrong in so many different ways. What she did was dangerous. It could have been disastrous. But the key to the passage is actually found in verse 9. Uh, verse 9, here we read it. Boaz wakes up. He's startled in the middle of the night. Who are you, he asks. Uh, I am your servant, Ruth. Ruth earlier said that she would do everything that her mother-in-law told her. Well, what did her mother-in-law tell her right now to do? She said, basically, wait and let the guy decide what's next. But that's not what Ruth does. I am your servant, Ruth. She does not say, do with me whatever you wish. She says, spread the corner of your garments over me. She proposes marriage. She proposes marriage to him. Now, you don't have to be an expert in ancient Near Eastern cultural mores to know that ain't the way that they they used to do it back then. That's not the way they rolled. You know, girls don't propose to guys. Uh, Certainly, Moabite girls don't propose to rich, eligible, powerful Israelite men. That's just not how it happens. But, But she deviates from the script in a very... In this key moment, the climactic moment of probably the entire book is right here. And she says, you marry me. Will you marry me? She does it in the most clever way possible. 
So if you're just visiting us this morning and you haven't read chapter two, you're at a little bit of a disadvantage. In chapter two, when they meet, uh, Boaz, he prays for her. He prays that she might come and take refuge under the wing of Yahweh, the God of Israel. You notice how she proposes marriage to him? Very cleverly says, okay, answer your own prayer. Spread your wing Spread your garment over me. Apparently, in the Middle East today, in some cultures, part of their wedding ceremony is a husband will take his, be it a shawl or a robe or something, but he will take his garments and he will cover his wife with them as part of the wedding ceremony. Because that's what it means, at least in this idiom, to be married, is a, a husband covers and protects his wife. So, what I want to suggest to you is that Ruth is a true heroine. In this climactic moment of the story, instead of going along with a scheme, she deviates from the script. She shows herself to be a true heroine, a bright, resourceful, noble woman of character whom uh, you just got to tip your hat to. So, what does this teach us practically? I realize I I don't want to turn the story into a morality tale of how we need to emulate Ruth and and be courageous like Ruth and not conniving like Naomi. But what I find is when I'm reading through any narrative of the Bible, I have this terrible habit of speed reading. I speed read everything that I read. And that's that's true of also biblical stories. I'll, I'll be flying through this and I will miss the impact of something like verse 9. When, if you really appreciate verse 9, you realize this was bold. This was a, this is a woman taking life by the horns. And, uh, I mean, talk about a gutsy, courageous, bold move. Take life by the horns, just go for it. Kind of daring, direct, not passive, but purposeful motion toward a desired goal. I'm impressed by that, especially because that's not my natural temperament. (laughs) And it's probably not yours. If you're in a Presbyterian church today, it's probably not yours. Because one of the most common pieces of advice Presbyterian Christians give to one another, I say this, you say this, in almost every situation, the advice we give is that if you're going to err, err on the side of, of caution. If you're going to err, just always your default should be err on the side of caution. Don't move too fast. Don't get out ahead of God. Play it slow. Um, Most Presbyterian Christians would always err on the side of caution. I think one of the reasons we do that is because we're much more fearful than we realize. (laughs) Um, It's because we are afraid. We're afraid of losing. We are so afraid of being told no We are afraid of failure, and that causes us to be some of the more cautious people walking on this planet. (laughs) But if we really believe in the sovereignty of God, if we really believe in the theology that we profess, if we really believe that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, if we believe that the kingdom of God has come to earth and the redemptive reign and rule of Jesus Christ 
and his kingdom shall have no end, and the grand unseen narrative reality of all the universe is that which we are, are happily participating, may participants in. If we really believe our theology, does that kind of theology naturally lead to such a cautious approach towards life? I mean, isn't that the type of theology that ought to embolden a man, a woman of God? Why is fear the dominant motif in our child rearing? Singles, why is fear so prevalent when you think about dating or get within a country mile of the M word, marriage? (laughs) Given our theological convictions, don't you think it should lead to something different? The greatest of all the made-for-TV Christmas specials has to be a Charlie Brown Christmas, right? Can I get an amen? And for me, the the greatest character in the greatest TV special has got to be Linus, right? Um, He steals the show. When When he walks up onto the stage and narrates the birth story of Jesus, Linus is sublime. He steals the show. What is his favorite object? What's the one thing that we... Oh, I see a hand right there. All right. It's his... It's, yes. It's his security blanket. You, we think that Linus is going to suck his thumb and carry a security blanket all the way through high school. <laughs> um, that's what we associate with him. You think you will never get a security blanket out of his hands, or, or so you think. Charlie Brown, in that moment of exasperation, exclaims, does anyone know what Christmas is all about? And Linus replies, sure, Charlie Brown, I can tell you what Christmas is all about. He walks to the middle of the stage, says, lights, please. And there were, in the same country, shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, And the glory of the Lord shone around about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. It's very subtle, but if you go back and watch the video, when Linus says the words of the angels, Fear not, he drops the blanket. I don't know if God is calling you today to do something bold or to do something purposeful, to risk something for the sake of his kingdom or simply to be a little less frightened. But his kingdom shall have no end. And if the announcement of the angels is true, if his name is actually wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, that should give a little bit of uh, sturdiness to your spine. (laughs) God has entered into human history in such a thrilling way to live his life as a man and to die the death that we deserved. Surely that frees us from being so cautious all the time. That's the first point. The second. Back to the story. There are a number of tantalizing questions in the book of Ruth that never quite get answered, but I think we as readers want to know the answer to them. For instance, was there a spark between Ruth and Boaz? Uh, is he attractive or is he ugly? Inquiring minds want to know that. Um, is he 
was he a bachelor all of his life? Or was he, all, was he a widower? And you know, she the widow? Um, the question I find most interesting, though, is the question that I alluded to vaguely at the beginning of the service. Given the character of Boaz, why would Naomi need to hatch a plot, a scheme, in the first place? You read it and you realize this guy, he would willingly be a redeemer. Why was a plot needed? Here's my answer to that. Somebody, after the second service last week, came up to me and they said, I have a confession to make. Uh, when, here's my confession. When I am out shopping at this time of year and I'm listening to the Christmas Muzak coming through the speakers above and I see all the Christmas displays and, and I watch one more Lexus December to Remember commercial, um, I hate Christmas. I just absolutely hate Christmas. But when I came in here this morning, the first Sunday of Advent, and read the passages and we started singing and I saw the flowers, I love this Christmas. I hate American Christmas. I hate, it's, I, I don't have to rant to you guys, we all know, but um, the, the just obscene and the commercialization of it. I hate American Christmas. I love, I love Christmas Christmas. If you and I were to go back in a time machine a thousand years before the birth of Christ, we would not see this idyllic scene where common everyday Israelites owned the full religious significance of their holidays, rituals, and laws. We would not have seen people who... um, what What we basically would have seen is what we see in Walmart or what we see in uh, Times Square, masses of Americans who have a passing familiarity with the Christian symbols of Christmas, but celebrate an almost entirely secularized version of it. So in other words, I truly believe if we went in a time machine, we would find an Israel, always in her religious practice, that looks just kind of like America at Christmas. Uh, People who are following Yahweh in name only, Here's one of the reasons why. Because so many of the laws that were passed, that were beautiful laws, were never followed by the people. For instance, when Israel, when she first came back into the promised land, God took all of that land and he, the real estate was divided up among all of the families. He said, here's my law. If somebody falls into poverty and they, as a result of their poverty, they lose their property, because I don't want there to be gross inequalities between the super rich and the super poor, every 50 years, the land would revert back to its original property deed, its original family. That was the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, you would get your land back. So you would never be generationally poor. Um, But I will also give you another law. It's called the Redeemer Law. The Redeemer law that was put on the books was that if you found yourself in a situation where your family was about to lose its property inheritance and you're in the middle of that 50-year period, what you can do is, is your closest relative, your blood kin, has first right of refu- refusal to buy that land and keep it in the family's name, which is a wonderful law. Um, I mean, you, so it meant that you would kind of grow up looking around at your family and saying, 
I, got, I know that somebody here in my family is always going to have my back. You grew up in a world where you expected that one of your brothers, one of them would be your guardian redeemer. Yeah, that's cool. But they hardly ever did it. There was a second custom relevant to today's passage called leveret marriage. Lavir is the Latin word for brother-in-law. If a woman got married and then her husband died and before they could have any children, then it was the responsibility of the brother-in-law of the husband to, or okay, that would be her brother-in-law. It would be the husband's, deceased husband's brother who would promise to take the woman into his home and care for her as a widow for all the rest of her life. It would probably be hard for her to remarry, so he takes her into his home and, if, if possible, father a child with her so that she would have a legacy. She would have descendants, and her family name wouldn't die out. Again, beautiful law. They just hardly ever practiced it because it was American Christmas in Israel. I'm going to go and let Brian next week when he preaches on uh, chapter four go into more of the details of, of what it means to be a guardian redeemer. But um, what I think is happening here is Naomi just expects that Boaz, he, he may need a little bit of a coaxing in order to fulfill his redeemer obligations. In this case, uh, some seductive coaching coaxing so that when they wake up in the morning and things have happened and people see her coming out of the threshing floor uh, room, then they, he's required to go through with it. But verse 12 says, no, no, I'd be happy to do it for you. Here's what he says. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. So there is a blood relative who gets first right of refusal on the first right of refusal. Uh, Didn't say that very well. But there is one guy like that. And he says, verse 13, stay here for the night and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty of purchasing back the land and marrying you, the woman who uh, then let let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Two points that I want to make in conclusion, they're very short points. Number one, Boaz's willingness to redeem Ruth is not because, it does not arise from his own neediness. His willingness does not arise from his own neediness. He is not a lonely man looking for love in all of the wrong places. Uh, and it, it does not arise out of his drunkenness. Uh, Brian Habig, a pastor in Greenville, South Carolina, made this excellent observation. He says, even though the passage clearly says the guy had been drinking and his, his spirits were merry, you notice he's woken up in the middle of the night. And is he slurring a speech at midnight? Being, no, no. The guy's perfectly clear-headed, thinking, lucid. He knows what he's doing. He's, he's even coming up with a plan to be the guardian redeemer. He goes into this eyes wide open, not as a drunk, but as a man who is, is full of nobility, full of noble love. And in that same way, Christ didn't redeem us because it didn't, his redemption did not arise because he was needy. To have need is to have deficiency. To have deficiency is to have lack. And God has no lack. God is an eternal uh, community of bliss, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
who has no lack, who has no loneliness, who goes into redemption with his eyes wide open uh, as a willing act of his love. And the second point, very simply, the redemption price is always costly. The final chapter of this story will illustrate just how costly the redemption price is and how uh, it, it was costly enough that one guy didn't want to participate in it. But redemption is always costly. It's so costly. A medical student was going through his residency rounds and he came to uh, his OBGYN round. Apparently this medical student, he had um, never seen a birth before, never actually witnessed it, either in person or on television. So he's standing in the hospital room watching for the very first time the agony, (laughs) the miracle of the birth of a person. And so what does he do? He goes, when it's over, he goes straight out to a florist, buys a dozen red roses, and sends them back to his mother because he understood what it cost. The most valuable substance in the world today is not diamonds, it's not platinum, it's not some super rare element and some super rare application. The most precious substance in the world today is the blood blood of the God-man the blood of Christ, which was used to purchase our redemption. Through the remainder of Advent, we will, I'm sure, read in our worship service the Messianic prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. Nobody expected that to mean an actual virgin would miraculously Conceive and become pregnant with God. Nobody believed and expected that Emmanuel literally meant God would become flesh and dwell with us. And no one could have possibly have guessed that Emmanuel would bleed, that God with us would bleed because he came to be our guardian redeemer, to purchase us with his own blood. And as we'll find out next week, and to marry us. Amen.